Welcome to Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. On the show, our team of industry experts interviews contingency fee attorneys. You will discover everything from how they got started to the secrets of their success and what's working in today's marketplace. And now, here's the Case Closed Podcast. Well, listeners, welcome back to the Case Closed Podcast this week. I'm your host, Michael Clannon, and my guest today is Ben Jemsik of Zacher Law Firm in Phoenix, Arizona. So welcome, Ben. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So, Ben, I have a lot of questions for you to answer. I'm going to ask you a lot of questions, and hopefully you can answer them in your sleep um, and that. But can you just kind of tell our listeners a little about you and your background? Sure. I uh, took the bar in October of 1999 in Tucson, Arizona. That's where it was being done. I uh, practiced in uh, Omaha, Nebraska while I was going to school and clerking. And then I started working here for a couple of firms. After I got out, I ultimately worked for a plaintiff's firm for a few years. It was great because I was able to do some cases on my own. They allowed me to do cases on my own. Then I went ahead and decided, hey, I think I can do this on my own and started my own firm. And then another lawyer I clerked with joined me. And then I just got a better offer from the firm I'm at now, Zacher Law Firm. So I went ahead and split after about, it's on my own, maybe seven years. Prior to that, uh, I'd worked for a variety of firms. When I went on my own, I did quite a few few different types of law. That was somewhat of a struggle, but I didn't just do plaintiff's work. I did some defense work, business work, that sort of thing. And then going back to Zacher Law Firm, I just did plaintiff's work. And that's what I do now. Explain for the listeners, what is plaintiff's work? What does that sure. mean? Sure. So plaintiff's work, uh, in any civil case, there's a plaintiff and a defendant, but typically when lawyers reference plaintiff's work, what they're really talking about is plaintiff's personal injury. And so these are typically tort cases, almost exclusively tort cases, which is an area of the law that distinguished from contract, uh, divorce, business law, that sort of thing. So tort, tort work uh, typically involves people that are injured and torts would be an area of law that have to deal with the governing of public policy, which would mean you were injured from an accident. That would be negligence. Uh, you were intentionally injured. That would be an intentional tort. There's trespassing, false imprisonment, defamation, those sort of things. But uh, in general, it would be representing plaintiffs for personal injuries, which would be physical and emotional injuries. Oh, great. Okay. Um, so you've represented clients in various states and internationally. Can you um, share a unique experience or experiences or challenges from working across different um, jurisdictions and with a diverse uh, clientele? Sure. So initially, when I came out of school and started working, um, I clerked uh, with a with a mid-sized firm in Omaha, Nebraska. We did quite a few different areas of, of the law, but I was new at it and really wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. When I got 
to Arizona, I ended up mainly focusing on personal injury. In that, we handled cases primarily in, in Maricopa County or just in Arizona, but we did cases all over the United States, depending on where we needed. But I've done cases in Nevada, uh, Florida, Texas, very little. Usually, I, almost always, we'd have to be what's called pro hoc in meaning an, uh, a local council would be needed so that we could uh, litigate using theirs. Because when you take the bar, you're only licensed to practice or a lawyer in the state in which you're admitted. When I went on my own, I couldn't just do personal injury or I didn't think I could just do personal injury. So I started doing a lot of different types of work. That would be, I, I handled all sorts of cases. It ran the gamut. I did uh, a lot of defense work. I did some uh, contract work. I've handled uh, cases with regard to school districts, defending, setting up cell tower agreements, things like that. Some of the difficulty for me doing that, one of the reasons I was glad to come back to plaintiff's personal injury is that I was somewhat dabbling in areas that caused a lot of work for me mm -hmm. to do because you're not doing just one area. You're having to do a lot of areas that you're not as familiar with. So I would have to learn to do those areas and in doing that it was difficult, but I had done a criminal trial, but litigation was something I was familiar with. So that wasn't really an issue, but I've done, I had, I ended up jumping in and helping on a divorce case, a, a EOC case. So I've done quite a bit in, in all of these different areas, but that challenge that's good for a young person, not as good for somebody that's uh, <laughs> getting into my age. So yeah. um, personal injury was something that I've had the most background with. The, the thing that I was mainly an advocate of, the thing that I like to do the most and um, getting out of some of those other areas certainly alleviated a lot of the stress that I was dealing with. Right. No. Well, okay, so you kind of, my next question was about, you know, the transition more to exclusively representing uh, victims in personal injury cases, and you kind of talked about, you know, what led to that shift to focus, like you said, more from a generalist to more of a, you know, sure more niche market and that. With your experience in personal injury cases, including, I believe, medical malpractice was one. I've done that, yeah. Right. Could you share essential insights for individuals in similar situations? And by individuals, you mean other lawyers, I assume? Yeah, or or even the client. I mean, there's two perspectives in hmm. that. So you mentioned uh, medical malpractice, and I've done different malpractice. And so that malpractice, just so uh, your listeners may not know is just a that's a fancy term for professional negligence mm -hmm. so when we're dealing with negligence let's say a car accident which people are familiar with what we're dealing with there is anytime you're dealing with negligence you're dealing with what's called the breach of the uh duty uh, a duty that you may owe other people and the standard of care in in that element like a car accident or a slip and fall that you may hear that's reasonable person. So a jury's 
trying to determine is the premises owner did they act as a reasonable person or did that driver act as a reasonable person when you're dealing with malpractice it's the exact same elements everything's the same the only difference is that you're dealing with a standard of care that's professional it's no longer a reasonable person it's did that physician did that nurse did that architect did that contractor act in a standard acceptable to other doctors in the profession, other uh, nurses, other architects, right? To their standard of care. So really what we're dealing with in, in a malpractice case is, is just really a standard of care issue. So in those cases, what makes a malpractice case different isn't the elements of proof. It's not really how you try the case. What makes it different though, is you're dealing with a professional uh, wrongdoer. And, and by wrongdoer, I don't mean to say that they're a bad person or they meant to do something. I mean, uh, the standard we hold in society is that they did something wrong. Should they be held responsible? Should they be the one uh, responsible and have to pay for the injury or the damage that they caused? And certainly in our system, of course, we hold them to that as long as we show that they fail to to abide by the standard of care that they're required to. And mm-hmm. when we're dealing with these malpractice areas, those become difficult cases because unlike a car accident case where you have, again, a wrongdoer, I'll call them a tortfeasor, you have somebody committing an act that caused something. When you're dealing with a malpractice, it's typically not is direct negligence. For instance, a doctor or a nurse is actually trying to help a wrong that's already occurred or an issue that's already occurred. And so there's not typically, occasionally do have it, cut the wrong leg off and so forth. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to help a problem and they just fail to do that, right? Mm -hmm. That's typically the situation. So you're dealing with a different kind of action where a juror uh, or a jury which is comprised of um, all of us, what you're dealing with is a jury that's going to look at those individuals and say, well, it's not as easy to show that uh, these people caused it because there's something wrong already, right? There's something going on already. That's a problem. They're trying to help it and they may make a mistake in doing so. Those, so those cases are extremely difficult. And mm-hmm. besides that, as I told you before, the standard of care isn't a reasonable person. The jury can determine reasonableness, but they can't determine whether a doctor or a nurse or another professional acted outside the standard of care. So I have to bring in as the lawyer for my client, I have to bring in another professional. And no professional wants to criticize another professional community. And so I end up having to go find, if I have an Arizona case, I'm typically going to have to go find somebody in another jurisdiction or another state to say, hey, this isn't a bad person, but what they did wasn't right. They should have done A, B, and C. Instead, they did X, Y, and Z. And therefore, well, that led to what occurred here. And therefore, that's why they're they're liable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those cases are extremely difficult because you're dealing with people who are sort of 
tend to be passively negligent as opposed to actively causing right. an issue, although they can actively obviously cause an issue. So you're dealing with that. And then you're also dealing with, I have to go out and retain other medical providers or other professionals to show what exactly happened to help the jury there. And I'm required to do that by the courses. Right. Wow. That's, so that's a long answer for that is, No, hey, no, that's hey, perfect. No. So you've, you've litigated numerous trials and, of course, argue before appellate courts. Can you discuss a particularly, uh, particularly memorable case or legal argument that impacted your career? I don't know if there's one that's impacted my career. I certainly have memorable cases, no question. Now, I've only, um, I have done uh, several trials. Um, I've sat and helped other lawyers and taken a witness here and there, but I've done many on my own and I've done, uh, I've argued in front of Arizona's appellate court system. I've argued in front of the Ninth Circuit down in San Francisco, mm -hmm. and I've argued in front of the Arizona State Supreme Court. All of these appellate issues I've done very rarely. It's completely different than a, than a trial case. I don't think anything has single-handedly moved my career in one way or the other. What they have done is they've given me experience, and I understand how things work because I've been able to have the opportunity to argue in front of those. I will tell you, um, the argument in front of the Arizona State Supreme Court was much more nerve-wracking, I think, than even the Ninth Circuit, um, partly because you've got a large panel, uh, partly because the courtroom was completely full on that day for whatever reason. And the other partly is opposing counsel that I was dealing with was very late to the opening argument. And I've never seen anything like that where the panel came out because he was very late. The panel came out and uh, sat and then said their piece specifically to the lawyer, which was unusual and awkward for everybody there. And then they left and came back and then we did our, our arguments. I, I will tell you, trial is much different than appellate work. You're mm -hmm. arguing, you're just purely arguing in appellate work and it's just legal issues. And a trial, you're not doing argument. You're mm -hmm. certainly there's argument involved, um, but very little. You're presenting a case and you're presenting your case through through witnesses. And so it's un unlike TV where you see these lawyers get up and, and and tell their piece and say what they want to say. That's not how anything works in in the courtroom. Right. The courtroom, right. everything that's being presented comes through witnesses, obviously. So yeah. that is how you see things work, though, in the appellate work. So they're very different. Um, one's much more academic than the other. Right. Um, one requires, to me, uh, doing a uh, trial, with witnesses, et cetera, is a much bigger, more complicated and complex process. That doesn't mean that lawyers that do appellate work, and I've done plenty, um, I'm certainly not an appellate lawyer. It doesn't mean there's not a lot of work. It's just different. Right. Um, but to me, the two, the trial work is much more rewarding than the appellate work. Certainly the those that only do appellate work would say otherwise, but I just enjoy that more. And I think it's, um requires a lot of work they both do but 
I've been fortunate enough to get to do both. Right. Well, that's great. Um, so you, now you have an experience as a professor in paralegal studies. I do. That's interesting. Yes. So um, I have taught various classes at Phoenix College, um, paralegal studies. They were actually a really great program. I stopped doing that maybe three or four years ago. I'd done it for about 15 years. I was one of the longer tenured I guess not really tenured, but uh, adjunct professors over there mm -hmm. for a long time. So I've done mainly uh, civil procedures, too. So the first part of the class, that, that tends to be a two-class class. So the first civil procedures, one is typically taught by a paralegal. Civil procedures, two, they try to get a lawyer doing it because they're, you do a trial in it. But mm -hmm. I've also taught... Um, while I was there, I've taught uh, intro to law, taught for legal writing, those sort of things. Um, I also was fortunate through there to teach. Uh, I used to volunteer for the uh, paralegal certification process, so they would have to take a class. So I'd go down to the state bar at the time and teach whatever class they would have for a Saturday, whether it be contracts or torts, right. property, that sort of thing. So um, how has teaching influenced your your legal practice? And maybe what lessons do you think are most valuable for those aspiring legal professionals? So if you can ever teach, I think that's it translates, or at least to me, it gives you a, a lot of people call it modeling. But what it does is it certainly helps, helped me anyway, in trials, litigation. So a lot of lawyers, everybody does everything differently. I don't I don't think there's any right or wrong way, certainly. And I think everybody has a different style um, when they're trying a case. One of the things that I try to do when I'm trying a case is to remember that I'm educating. I'm trying to educate a jury, certainly in a persuasive way, but I don't come over the top and try to persuade. I try to educate in a persuasive manner. And that is where I feel the years of teaching help when I'm doing trials. So every trial I do, and this is very common, I'm not unique right. in doing this, but I do PowerPoint openings, PowerPoint closings. I do a lot of demonstrative visuals in, in my litigation, but I did exactly the same thing for classes. Every class I did was PowerPointed. I try not to get too lecture oriented, but it also gives you confidence in speaking in front of people. And I had to do that multiple classes every year. So I taught more than one class during the semester. So I'd often teach two classes, usually not more than two classes each semester for 15 years. And I'll, I'll tell you, it's very similar to a, a trial. Certainly uh, the preparation wasn't so much preparing for trial nobody realizes how much work it is and how much work trial is um it's thoroughly rewarding to do a trial and but there is a a component of to me it's very similar the way i do a trial is the way i teach a class right right given your background in legal ethics can you discuss the importance of ethics in civil litigation and personal injury cases yeah so that's an interesting question so Ethics. So obviously every lawyer has to follow or abide by 
or they're, I, in other words, they're subject to uh, the ethical rules, call them the ERs. Plaintiff's lawyers are no different. There's actually a few uh, rules that are specific to lawyers that take cases on contingency fees, because when you're dealing with a contingency fee, which way of saying contingency fee is my fee as the lawyer is contingent or subject to a recovery uh, by you. If we don't recover, we don't we don't get a fee. There's an ethical dilemma just immediately built in that is because I'm going to gain if, if you're going to gain and there's really no immediate separation. In jurisprudence, that wasn't permitted. It's an exception to the rule. Um, plaintiff's lawyers are allowed to do it. Personal injury lawyers are allowed to do it. Divorce lawyers are not. Criminal lawyers are not. Most of them are not. In Arizona, and this goes across the country, this exception has been done for personal injury victims. One of the reasons we make the exception to allow contingency fee agreements is because otherwise these people wouldn't be represented. They don't have the money to, to go out and pay an hourly fee. And so there comes this automatic sort of conflict of interest built in. It's certainly a good thing to allow this type of arrangement to occur, but because there is a conflict, um, we're always having to deal with that, right? And so there's many conflicts that we all as lawyers have to deal with and be, be wary of, but there's a special one really with uh, the contingency fee arrangement. And, and the law is one of the few areas uh, where fees are different than any other in any other practice. So if I represented you and I was a, not a lawyer, but represented you on buying a house or selling a house, and I may get a percentage, perfect example. And the reason I use that one when we're dealing with fees and ethical rules is that my job is to get you the most I can as a, as a, house broker and agent in the quickest way, right? So if I if I'm able to sell your house and get you the highest price I can, right away I get the fee and you'd be very happy. If I did the same thing for you and did it quickly without much work as a uh, plaintiff's lawyer, I may not be able to obtain my full fee that we agreed in. So if I was to in the normal fee would be 33 and a third percent. If I were to charge that the bar says, well, you only wrote a letter, Ben, or you only did an hour worth of work, should you be get the fee? So the law is the only area where my fee is subject to reasonableness. It's somewhat head scratching in some ways, and it's understandable in other ways. So it's this weird thing that uh, there's this policy consideration that says, we've got to make sure that our fees are always reasonable. It doesn't really matter what we legally agreed to. We've got to ensure that the fee is reasonable on every case that we do. It's the amount of time, the amount of work, what was I sacrificing in order to do that case, that sort of thing. Those all, those all sort of come into it. But with regard to ethics and trying cases, that happens to be the right. one where plaintiff's lawyers like myself, it, there's a little bit of a wrinkle to it. Um, right. In addition to all the other <laughs> ethical rules that we have to abide by. And to me, the easiest way to, to abide by any of these is what's best for the client. It's always how we have to be thinking. What is best for my client? Not what's best for me, well, not what's right. best for my firm, but what's best for the client. And that runs into this idea 
sometimes we get a little cater to the client too much. And in that regard, what I mean by it's a client, not a customer, right? Okay. Customers, we sell nails to in hardware, mm-hmm. right? Clients are different. The client doesn't always know best. In fact, the mm-hmm. client often doesn't. That's why we're there, right? Okay. So the, the customer is always right, does not translate to this. But if we use our skills and understanding of the ethical rules, it really comes down to, am I doing what's right for the client? That's all you have to sort of keep right. in mind. Forget about the other goals. Mm-hmm. Am I doing what's right for the client? And then that'll invariably mm. go along with us abiding by the other. Sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. So in your years of practice, you've witnessed legal changes. Um, what noteworthy trends or developments do you see in civil litigation and personal injury law today? So that's an easy one. The state bar recently, and by recently, a few years ago, decided to get rid of the uh, non-lawyer fee split. Or And along with that came a few things. So typically, I couldn't share a fee with a non-lawyer. So if you refer the case to me, I couldn't share that fee with you. I can't give you money for it. I can't do any of that. That rule is, along with some other things, has sort of gone by the wayside. Um, I believe that rule is five ER 5.4. Don't hold me to that, but I it's somewhere along that okay. line. Instead of modifying that rule, though, they just got rid of it. And so you, you've got these issues. There's some other issues that come with it that aren't exactly, in my opinion, great. But nonetheless, what that has done is that has brought in a lot of corporate firms or backing a lot of outside by outside i mean outside arizona we have a lot of outside money coming in because they're willing to bankroll because now you can fit split fees with them right so they they'll come in and what that's done by the way is that has in my opinion gotten rid of for good or for bad um it's gotten it's sort of alleviated the ability of the solo practitioner to get work anymore, right? They don't have the yeah. funds to advertise and do all of this. And so what it's happened is it's it's trending towards displacing um, anybody that can work in this area that used to work in this area. It used to be, you could set up shop and you'd have a couple of plaintiff's cases and you'd do some other stuff. And it sort of alleviated that because you can't compete a solo practitioner can't compete with outside money setting up giant firms and um, with all the advertising. It's just everybody's funneled sort of towards the advertising. Maybe you can get some of their cast offs, maybe you can't, but ultimately it sort of changed the game in that regard in Arizona. And it's changed it in, in many other ways as well. So you can now go out and say, hey, I'll give you a referral fee if you can refer. So it's really changed the way in, in how we would get clients or not get clients. Right. And that's the one rule that's really single-handedly sort of changed the, the paradigm of how personal injury is practiced. And to me, there's, a, there's some good in it and there's some sure. bad in it too. Right. Like anything else, right? Right. Pros and cons. And everything. Right. 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 <laughs> to me, I you know my concern is how how is it overall going to impact the injured? 
How is it going to impact them? Are they getting the best lawyer? Are they getting the best representation? I'm not saying that they aren't. I just, I'm not sure really, ultimately, that's how we have to look at it. What's best for the client? Again, going back to that simple rule. Perfect. Can you um, offer advice to individuals seeking legal representation in personal injury cases? And what should they consider when choosing a an attorney? Um, yeah, so a couple of things. So I get calls all the time. People come to me and say, this is what happened. This is what happened, that sort of thing. So a couple of things. Everything that I do and look at, and this isn't just in my practice, this is sort of decision-making in general for me. I use sort of a utilitarian viewpoint on uh, risk-benefit. I sort of have a motto that said, there, there are no solutions, right? There's only risks and alternatives, right? Um, there's only choices. And so sometimes I get these clients and let's say they have a a fairly small case, well, I always tell them, hey, I'm going to take a third or I'm going to take 35% or I'm going to take 40, depending on the case and where it goes right. and how it scales. And maybe you don't want to hire a lawyer, right? Maybe you need to look at, is this something I can do or not do? Now, certainly I'm going to make it easy if you do, right? Mm -hmm. You're, it's going to alleviate what you have <laughs> um, to do yourself. And it, it just depends on who you are and, and what needs you have. There is no one-stop shop. And I don't think there's one-stop shop advice to give to anybody. So our firm can handle a large variety of cases, but there are certain cases I will certainly say, hey, we're not the best firm for this. Let me tell you another firm that would be better. And let me help you if I can uh, on this. So advice for... Um, individuals looking, I will tell them, hey, I'm not here to sell you on on me. I will tell you what I think of your case and, and I'll tell you, hey, I think it's a good case or I think it's a bad case. And then I'm going to tell you, this is what I'm going to charge. Because at the end of the day, it's still money, it's still a business. Otherwise, we wouldn't exist and there, the lawyers wouldn't be around. So I, I try to confront that issue with them right off the bat. And I try not to sell people on, uh, and this drives me insane. I don't, I, <laughs> people, lawyers will puff up the case uh, to try to get them to sign on the dotted line. And my feeling is, I'll tell you, hey, I think it's a good case. This is what I charge. Get online, Google. If you think that other people are better, by all means, go do that. I, you know, I'm not sure they are or they aren't, but. Certainly, we have a marketplace. Shop around if you want. Yeah. Right. Now, right. I will tell you, not a lot of lawyers litigate. Does that mean you have to have a lawyer that litigates? No. But if you get to a point as a client that understand, if you can't resolve the case, at some point, it's going to have to litigate. And clients don't understand that. And I have to explain it to them. A client that's injured always wants more money. And insurance company on the other side always wants to give less money. That's just the, yeah. that's the paradigm we're, we're dealing with. So if they're not giving you what you want and they can't force you to take what they want, you can't force them to give you what you want, then you're going to have to go to a third party, whether that's an arbitrator or a jury. And there are some lawyers that can do that for you and some lawyers can't. Hmm. And that is sort of what yeah. you have to look at.
Now, no client or very few clients ever want to hear going to litigation. They don't want that. And that's understandable. That being right. said, ultimately, that's the next step if you can't get it resolved. That doesn't mean you will go to that next step, but that has to be kept in mind moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's huge. So looking ahead, are there any specific areas within personal injury law that you see evolving or gaining prominence in the near future? Yeah, I, I sort of touched on this earlier, and not legally necessarily, but I think what you're going to see is you're going to see uh, a consolidation of firms. So what I mean by that is right now there's, I shouldn't say now, but five, 10 years ago, there was probably more plaintiff's lawyers than anybody else, right? Uh, um, personal injury lawyers, maybe with divorce lawyers, but for the most part, uh, everybody did personal injury law. Mm -hmm. And not to say they still don't, but I think because of these fairly recent rules and what can be done and what can't be done, I think you're seeing, you're only going to see about 10 to 15 firms and you're not going to hear much about the smaller law firm, the solo practitioner. Sure, you may have a friend who knows a guy, but that guy probably is going to, you know, that lawyer is probably going to be mainly practicing in a different area, but he or she will also do your personal injury case. You always have that. But for the most part, I don't think you're going to see as many solo practitioners take on personal injury cases solely, just not financially viable in a world in which the mega, these mega firms are coming in and they have all the advertising. You just can't, a solo practitioner just can't keep up with that. It's a real shame because I think uh, there's a lot of great attorneys and not, and, and I'm not necessarily certain that these big firms are great, although they are, they are pulling great lawyers. Right. So it's being, it's being mitigated that the issues with these big uh, advertising firms are being mitigated because they have no choice, but to bring in the good trial lawyers. So you're getting that, so the client's not necessarily going to suffer from it. I don't think that used to be the case, but now it is because the solo practitioner is having to gravitate towards, hey, I'll, I'll work for these uh, firms. And so you are getting experienced, good lawyers. I think they also have the infrastructure to help bring up right. better lawyers, which I don't think they were as good at doing before, but they have to be now. Yeah. So Ben, before we bring the case closed podcast sure. to an end, is there anything that you would like our listeners to know or whether it's, you know, about you, about what, you know, anything that we haven't talked about, is there anything important you want our listeners to know? So I don't know specifically, and, and I apologize, I'm not as familiar with this podcast as and I'm a big podcast person, but I tend not to listen to legal podcasts. There's a reason for that because I deal with it every waking hour. And so I try to get away from that. Um, so what would be the, is it, would it be the general public, other lawyers? What would be yeah, the- Yeah, no, general. I mean, yeah. I mean, mostly I'm going to say general public. Is there anything that okay. you want our listeners to know 
any advice, any? Yeah, ideas? sure. I'll, I'll do two. I'll do one for the general public and maybe okay. other lawyers, especially young lawyers that are listening. Sure. So for the general public, I'd always say shop around. Don't take anybody. What they say is this is the only way it is. So if you don't like a fee agreement, call somebody else you feel comfortable with. There's no harm in, in chopping your case around. If you are, I will tell you this, if you're a personal injury victim, what I suggest is that, I can't suggest this enough, if you can, always hire a lawyer. If you can't, you don't want to go that route, then go ahead and talk to the other side, open a claim and do that. But don't ever do that if you intend to hire a lawyer. Get the lawyer on right away. Hire a lawyer, whatever lawyer it is you want. Get them in right away. There's nothing worse for me as a lawyer to get a client who's a week before a statute, who mm -hmm. said things that maybe they shouldn't have said, that sort of thing. It just makes it so much harder uh, for lawyers. If you have a if you have a complicated case like a medical malpractice, you better go early because nobody wants to mess with your case unless they have plenty of time under the statutes. And just for the general public in Arizona unless your defendant is uh, uh, the government or potentially the government, the typical statute of limitations is two years from whenever you were injured. That's the general rule. Uh, certainly there are exceptions and don't hesitate. Immediately get on the phone, call, Google, ask a friend, do what you can. But I would say always contact a lawyer because at the very least, at least you're gonna get some advice hopefully on and that will help on what you want to do for the younger lawyer that's listening um i will tell you some of the mistakes i made as a, as a young lawyer there's a few um if you tend to open your own shop and want to do that make sure that you learn about infrastructure first get the, the right professionals not necessarily attorneys but the right professionals paralegals bookkeeper those sort of things, get them on board right away and understand infrastructure is important. These bigger firms, that's what they're great with. And I always suggest if you're a long, young lawyer, get your training through somebody else. Don't think you can go out on your own. Mentorship is huge. And finally, for any lawyer that I've learned lately is health and exercise. Our job is the most stressful job in the world and managing is difficult. And people say, I don't have time to work out. I don't have time to run. I don't have time. You don't have time not to do those things. I think the first thing that I do anymore in the morning is I get up early and I do those things. I lift weights, work out. And I didn't used to. And I struggled with other parts of my work. So getting up early and taking care of those things, I think is invaluable. And I wish I would have known that early on to sort of handle those things because we work in a job that I cannot think is any more stressful. And finally, get along with the other side. Wherever you can do things with the other side that you can get along with them, remember, they're not your enemy. At the end of the day, they may not be on your side, the other side, opposing counsel, et cetera. But I think treating people with respect being ethical with them, not hiding things, not bullying them, um, being as pleasant as you can. And I know this is for the general public as well. They they think that you're supposed to be nasty to the other side, but that doesn't help your client. And it doesn't help you as a lawyer 
either for your client or for the long run. And so um, you see, for the most part, most people are good at that rule, but um, I think it's imperative in order to best serve your client that you be as pleasant and professional with the other side that you possibly can. Well, great advice for both the general public and for these young attorneys looking to, you know, grow their business and, and that. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. So how do, who do, how do listeners find you? Do you have a website? So, you know, I'm not in charge of any of that. So I don't do really marketing or any, any of that. So Zachar Law Firm, um, that's the firm I work for. We have a website, to be honest. I haven't been on it. Um, our law firm ends up doing a lot of work for other lawyers. So mm -hmm. when they go to another lawyer, often when it comes down to litigation, they'll end up with me. That's what I was probably saying before is some of these bigger firms or these advertising firms, it's not to say that they're bad. They're very good. Um, but sometimes they need or uh, retain firms like mine. And we do a lot of our own work too. But when it comes down to litigation, we're utilized by a lot of different people. So you, you may just find me accidentally and, and not on purpose. That being said, we do have a, a firm website, Zacher Law Firm. And I think you can just Google that. Um, I don't know the exact site. Yeah, I, I believe. I think I would plug. <laughs> I, I, I should know my pluggables, but I just don't. Uh, yeah, so, so Google Google Zacher Law. That's Z A C H A R Law, and I believe that is your website is zacherlaw.com. That sounds right. And your email is b demsick b j e m s e k at zacherlaw.com. Otherwise, That's check right. out their website. So thanks again, Ben, for joining us on this uh, case closed podcast. We appreciate your knowledge and sharing your experience and and um, endeavors that you've had over the years with our clients and that. So I think we'll end it there and uh, look forward to the next Case Closed podcast. This has been your host, Michael Clannon. Have a great week. Thank you, Michael. You Thanks are for having me on. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and their insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast is led by industry experts who unlock insights from the nation's top contingency fee attorneys. Each week on the show, the guests share how they got started, secrets of their success, and what's working in today's marketplace. Guests on the Case Closed podcast include successful contingency fee attorneys that will share their secrets so you can close more cases. Tune in each week for a dynamic conversation about winning legal strategies that will grow your business. 